Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Gift Conversations podcast with Sam Beard. And today we have uh, Libby Doggett, an early childhood education expert with us. And we're honored to have her and listen to what she has to say about the, the current status and what we can do moving forward about birth to three. And we've got Sam Beard, who is the founder of Gift Connect and has created and run programs for eight U.S. presidents. So, Libby, welcome to the show. And I think everybody already knows me. I'm Brett Lechtenberg. I'm Global Director for Gift, Connect, Gift Connect, and I'll be helping kind of facilitate us along. So, Libby, welcome. Thank you, Brett. Good to be here. Yeah. Libby, you are just an absolute encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to early childhood development. And can you give our listeners just a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into this field, your journey, and we're going to kind of go in depth about some of the things you've witnessed, experienced, and how you're helping lead this movement. Sure. Well, I hope I'm not an encyclopedia, but uh, through my long, long 50-year uh, career, I have uh, had the fortune of working on early childhood education. I've worked at the local level, the state level, the national level, and I've worked in all three aspects of early childhood education, which we'll get into later. I've worked in Head Start. I've worked in the child care space, but mostly I've worked in the school space with kids with disabilities and those without. So I have kind of experience in all levels of early childhood and all aspects of early childhood. And most importantly, I'm really just passionate about it and care about it and have had a wonderful time. Um, time in this in this career. Most recently, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy and Early Learning for former President uh, Barack Obama. And so I was at the Department of Education and I was the liaison for the Department of Education with the White House, with the Department of Health and Human Services and other agencies so that we really pull the federal government behind early childhood education for our kids in this country. And that's outstanding. We're going to talk about that more. Um, tell our listeners, what got you into this field? Why, why did you pick early childhood development? Well, I didn't start off in this when I was at the University of Texas many, many years ago. I was going to teach in Spanish and French. And it was in the middle of my senior year when I was sitting on my bed about to take finals. And it just had a, like a lightning strike that what I was really interested in was young children. I had no idea at that point where to go to find out how to do it, what it would look like or anything. I just knew at that point I wanted to work with young children. It's a little bit like falling in love. Fortunately, I had a, a number of professors at the University of Texas and friends and mentors who helped me along the way figure out how to, to actually take courses the last semester of my senior year in early childhood, then go on to get a master's in curriculum and instruction, but concentrating on early childhood, and then to get a PhD in early childhood for kids with disabilities. So really have concentrated ever since I was in college on the youngest children. Uh, you know, I, I just think what's important is that I was passionate about it. I didn't know if it would would be uh, make a difference, but I knew that that working with young children could be my life's work. That's outstanding. Uh, well, tell our listeners a little bit about birth to three, why birth to three, third birthday is really important. Give us kind of some of your wisdom and insight into that. Well, it's 
very exciting to be talking about this because it used not, we used not to talk about it. But we know that the brain begins building from the first moments of conception throughout a person's life. But during those early years of a child's life, when brain development is so fundamental, that's when we need to do more. Mm -hmm. About 70% of the brain is developed by age one and 90% is developed by age three. This doesn't mean that the other years aren't important. It just means that the early years are so much more important than we originally thought. And it's during these early years that genes interact with experience, providing a foundation, weak or strong, for all future learning, mm -hmm. behavior, and even health. You know, we always see kids so excited. They're running around, moving their bodies. And what we don't see is all that's happening in their brains that are also moving and developing. The activity level in the brain of a three-year-old is actually two and a half times greater than that of an adult. Wow. And what's so important is that we have uh, research from multiple fields, from education, psychology, medicine, economics, and health, and all of it shows that those early years make a huge difference uh, in the child's development later on. And we can talk so more, more about that if you want. Yeah, I'm sure. a little bit, because there's a, I think the name is correct. There's a, a somebody who's recognized as uh, sort of a genius adding values. And I think his name is, is John Franklin, Sir John Franklin. And he says that, I don't know how he did it from a research viewpoint, but 96% of babies are born as geniuses. And then, and then, then from there, they go downhill. And uh, I just want like, one more comment on, on your part on, on this thing about the brain science. So many top people, whether it be in business or top elected officials, they don't understand the power of three. And they're talking in much broader senses. And somehow we need to get our policymakers and business community leaders and, and local community leaders to, to really understand the power of threes. So, uh, what is your experience with that? Uh, I talked to top people. I've never, I've never focused on three. No, they, they think nothing's happening in those early years, but we do have such good research and I think it is getting out there. We just need your help making more people aware of it. You know, that high quality interactions with parents or with early childhood providers uh, in, you know, really makes a difference. It reduces need for social services later on. It lowers the criminal justice costs. It increases self-sufficiency and productivity among families. It even ensures better health outcomes in later life with lower rates of diabetes and heart disease, just to name a few of the positive outcomes. And so we can't understand why policymakers don't see it, that to reduce crime, you start early. One of the things I was just talking with George Halverson, who got me into this in the first place, and I asked him, isn't it true that zero to three is a major determinant of future mental health? And he said, absolutely. What is your response to mental health of the first three years? Absolutely. There's uh, the place I would direct people to in the United States is the Center on Developing Child at Harvard, where they've done amazing research. And they uh, will talk a little bit about the brain architecture, maybe in a minute. But they've done work around the brain architecture. And their most recent research is really showing that the environment that a child lives in, grows in, plays in, learns in 
actually gets under the skin of the child and affects their developing brain and other biological systems, of course, including mental health. And this rapidly advancing science provides increasingly clear evidence that beginning before birth, these environmental conditions shape how children develop, which shapes their lifelong physical and their mental health in turn. And Libby, would you would you say, in your opinion, that the science is pretty clear that and that most scientists are on the same page of how important this is? Um, or do you think there's like an ongoing battle going on here between different factions? Of, and I'm talking just from the science realm, not politicians or educators, but pure scientists who are looking into this. What's your opinion I, on that? I think the science is settled. Yeah. And it's just a political, it's, now it's a political fight. It's a really a policy fight in convincing people that this is government business rather than just uh, let, letting parents do what they need to do. I, I, that's such an important point. And thank you for saying that because the stuff I've done, usually you have half thinking one way and the other thinking the other way. And there's never been anything where there's such clarity on the science and then we're not following it. Yeah, we're not following the science and it, it you know, how, what do you do when you when you can't use if you're not using the science, but the science is pretty settled. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about history of early childhood in, in the U.S. Um, President Johnson, Head Start, things like that. Can, can you give us a little bit of your perspective on that, how that history lays out and how it's kind of went, walked through the U.S.? It's a long and complicated history. And before I even talk about the history, I really want to talk a little bit about um, kind of early childhood education and what it is. And I think one of the problems we've had in kind of selling uh, early childhood education to people is that it is too complex. So if you think of schools, you think of a school system. And we know we all know what that looks like. But in early childhood education, it's much more complex than that. We have a variety of programs that are funded for a variety of reasons. So we have Head Start, which is federally funded, and it was started uh, by President Johnson many years ago to help give children who are at low income and from our poor, some of our poorest families, economically uh, poor, um, the a Head Start in school. So they go to school when they're three and four. Then we have childcare, which is funded to help parents have a place, to, a safe place to send their children while they're working. And it really wasn't as concerned about the child development aspects of it. And then we have states and now the federal government that have realized that preschool, that, that really kids need to go to school before they get to be five, that they need to do something early on. And so we have preschool, which is typically for three and four-year-old children. And that's set up to be more of an uh, educational program. Each of those is a different funding stream. It's set up for a different purpose. And now we're trying to combine that into something, you know, for the children, it doesn't make any difference what, what the funding stream is or who, who is providing the services, what they need in each of those settings is exactly the same thing. They need a high quality, stimulating environment where they can play, where they can interact with adults that are caring and will, will get down on their level and talk to them. And they can interact with other children who will bring out the best in them. And so, you know, that's been the challenge in our, um, in our history. So 
if you want to go back, to, some people all go back all the way to World War II when we had a major child care initiative so that moms could work. But mm-hmm. that all was wiped out after the war and moms returned home and uh, the child care money dried up. But what really, I think, is, is funded or really made early childhood work um, is two studies. One is the Perry Preschool Project, which was carried out in 1962. So the, mm-hmm. the, we go, can go back that far to 67. And the other one is the Abbasidarian Project. And they both worked, uh, looked at young, young children and, and provided them a high-quality early education. Abbasidarian beginning at birth, Perry Preschool was three- and four-year-olds. But what's most important is these were randomized control trials. Even though they were small sample sizes, they looked at the children after they finished the program, and then they followed those children year after year after year into their middle age. And they found that long lasting benefits that I described earlier, which is educational attainment, uh, better income, less criminal activity, other important life outcomes were sustained well into their adulthood. And both of these studies, you know, have really helped ramp up early childhood over time. So based on those studies, we first in 1965, under President Johnson, thank you very much, uh, have Head Start. And Head Start is kind of considered the national early childhood program. It's our, it's our, it's our model. And that money goes from the federal government to programs all over the country. And it was important because it said, you know, children start learning uh, before they enter school. They're learning all the time. It provided comprehensive services, screenings, uh, good nutrition, working with parents. So it set a standard that all of the rest of early childhood is now trying to reach. It's still in place. Um, so that we, we, it isn't just the child, but it's the whole family that you're trying to work with. Another important thing that happened early on that has affected what's happening even today is in 1971, uh, riding high on the Head Start and how well it was doing, Congress passed a bill called the Comprehensive Child Development Act, which would have created a national network of federally funded child care centers with tuition subsidized depending on the family's income. It was budgeted at $2 billion for the first two years. Uh, the money was to have been a f- serious first step toward alleviating the challenges of a labor force increasingly full of working moms. It's what we wish we had today. Congressional Republicans and Democrats alike supported the bill and expected President Nixon to sign it. And then Nixon vetoed it with scathing language. And this is what hurt even more than the veto denouncing the radical idea that government should help rear children in the place of their parents. And that veto, which rested on, you know, really cultural grounds more than financial uh, constraints was a huge setback to the field. Um, Fortunately, after that, well, it really took a while because that was in 1971. It wasn't until 1986 that we had some more activity. And that was around kids with disabilities. Uh, We all know that uh, families of children with disabilities are amazing advocates and they fight like, Uh, crazy to get what they can for their kids who need it. And what it shows is that they they chose early childhood intervention um, and passed a bill in 1986 to provide services for infants and toddlers called early childhood intervention. And at the same time, they uh, provided uh, preschool 
for children three and four-year-old with disabilities. So that set a stage as well. Then finally, in 1990, we had the Child Care and Development Block Grant, which is still in place today. Uh, fortunately, the money has grown, but it still doesn't serve every child that's needed. Here in Texas, we're serving not even half, half of the children who need this, but it provides funding so that parents can choose a child care center and be subsidized. We call, I call it scholarships. They can get a scholarship so their child can go to child care so that they can go to work. And that really is uh, the bedrock of the early childhood system today, although Head Start, preschool, and, of course, uh, programs for kids with disabilities provide a lot of uh, help for that. You know, there are other pieces of it, but those are the main sources, and that's kind of the, the really the, the uh, movement until recently. And we can talk more about that if you'd like. Yeah, um, let's, let's kind of jump ahead now a little bit to kind of your work with President Obama and the administration and the things that you folks were trying to put together and, and how that kind of came about, because I think that'd be really interesting to our listeners. Well, what was exciting was in, with President Obama and then actually uh, the, the Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, and then John King, we had three amazing advocates for early childhood education who could talk very, very fluently about it, knew the research, knew why it was important. And all three of them, as well as the Secretary of Health and Human Services, used the bully pulpit to make this case when they were making speeches, uh, when they traveled around the country, they went to child care centers, to Head Start centers, to preschool programs, uh, they held forums. And even when they were talking about other things, they would mention the importance of early childhood education. So I just want to say the bully pulpit is is very, very important, and we need more people at high levels talking about early childhood education and visiting programs because that is, is a systems change in and of itself. Uh, the other thing that happened during the Obama administration is that we, we at the U.S. Department of Education worked really closely with our counterparts at, at the Health and Human Services Agency. Linda Smith was over there. She's an awesome leader. And we were able to do joint policy statements. We actually had joint program, funding programs. We worked really closely together so that people out there in the field, whether they were Head Start Child Care or in a school setting, with kids with disabilities or without, they could see that what we want is we wanted to bring this field together. We wanted to have more continuity for all children. And, you know, and then there were some policy wins as well. We had major funding for home visiting. We haven't talked about that, but we all know that really the best teachers are parents. Mm -hmm. Parents, I always say, are the best service delivery system we ever had. And that everything we can do to help parents be the best parents they can be, um, that's that's bang for our buck. That's really important. Some parents don't need help at all. Other parents need help occasionally. And some parents who are very young or have fewer resources may need more intensive help. So we have something called the maternal childhood, early, infant early childhood home visiting program. It's called McV. But that provides money to states to, to help parents get the supports they need to be the best parent they can be. We had that. Then we also had something called the Race to the Top Early Learning Challenge. And you've heard me describe the problems in our field in terms of 
not having a system. Well, the race to the top was really money to help states build that system, figure out how to bring Head Start, childcare, and preschool together into one program so that we don't have multiple funding streams and uh, parents have wondering, what am I eligible for? And teachers wondering, which standards do I have to meet? The other the last thing I'll talk about is we had something called the Preschool Development Grants Program. And it was just great because it provided money to states to provide preschool and, high, and made the case, and we haven't talked about this, it's so important, that high quality programs, if you have low quality programs, they don't get the results that we talked about. So it really has to be a high quality program. You can't look just like babysitting. It's got to be someone with some training who's interacting with children in a very, very important, nuanced way to help children develop their skills. So the preschool development grants were, uh, were, were a critically important part. They're still around, and fortunately now they're being used much as the race to the top was, which was helping states build that system. And I'm real excited because Texas now got a preschool development grant program, and we are building our system for early childhood here in this uh, gigantic state. Awesome. Well, you kind of paved the way for my next two questions, and, and I'm going to ask the parenting question first. In our experience, so many parents don't either believe or understand just how important they are in the child's brain development process. Could you speak to that a little bit and maybe give some clarity and some wisdom for the parents that might be listening to this? I think some parents think they're too impo more important than they are, and then other parents don't even, even have a clue. And then there are, of course, people in between. I think there are some parents that are doing way too much, you know, or buying apps and, and things that, that uh, they think will make a difference. And what kids truly need is loving interactions and frequent interactions with caring adults in their lives. And so it's that parent, it's not that app, it's not that music, it's not, it's not anything other than the parent. Uh, obviously, if parents are showing their child the music, showing them books, that's important, but it isn't that the, the things, it's the, the adults and, and other children in that child's life that really make the difference because that's what makes the brain grow. It's that interaction with caring adults. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, I think, I think parents these days do know their importance. I think, see parents running around, my young, my uh, parent, my daughters as well, um, you know, trying to do such a good job uh, in those early years, making sure that they get high quality child care, that they have, uh, you know, what they, what, lots of books in the house. But other fa families, they may even, they may know it, but they just don't have the time. Mm -hmm. We got to find ways to, help parents have time for their kids. And if they're working two or three jobs, they're barely making making the rent payment, they're having to, uh, you know, cut what their children are eating or make a decision whether they're going to get medication or food, then, then we're really strapped. So mm -hmm. we've got to find ways to provide more uh, provisions, more actually money into those homes where families are, are really hurting right now as because it gives them things to buy food and books and other things that their kids need, but hopefully it can buy them some time because that's what the kids need from their parents. Right. Uh, that's great. And that's great advice. And I'm going to now go into the second part of what question you already kind of started. 
give us your opinion on what we need to do to kind of start fixing our education process here. We went from being, you know, top of the heap in America to anywhere from 18th to 34th, depending on the metric. And obviously that can be a little bit, it can vary a little bit, but we're not at the top of the heap anymore. I think everybody kind of sees that. What do you think we need to do to start making some serious change? Well, I never underestimate America. I think it's an amazing country and we can do anything we set our minds to do. And we just haven't focused on early childhood and we haven't focused enough on education. But if we're going to fix the education system, if we're going to assure that that people who come out of the education system have go on to a college career and then on to another career, you know, a career or they go on to a wonderful, well-paying job, we got to start early. There's those first five years before children even enter the school system. And we've got to make sure those first five years are absolutely stunning for every child, that they're full of caring adults, parents at home who have resources and know how their importance of their role. And then early childhood settings, whether they're in school, they're in a childcare center or a Head Start center that are stimulating, that are fun, that are play-based and uh, that, that support the parents and the child. And I think we would have better outcomes in our K-12 system if we do that. You know, we've got to, we've got to, um, we still have some pushback about working moms. You know, so there's still some people that don't think women should be working. I don't know where they are, where, how they think that, but we've got to get rid of the idea that that women are not going to work. Women in this country are working and they're contributing significantly and they've got to have more support. And we've got to quit having this be a political football. I think preschool became a political football when President Obama became such an advocate using the bully pulpit, which was fantastic. And uh, Republicans started seeing this as a, a democratic issue. It's not. Fortunately, I think childcare and Head Start have have been able to be supported by uh, people on both sides of the aisle. I think that's critically important because we need everyone to realize this is an amazing opportunity. Uh, these are resources. Children are our resources for our future. And like you said, uh, Sam, you know, some people think that all children can be geniuses if we just provide the right environment. I don't know if geniuses, but I think that every child can do better if we do better as a country. I think the genius part is about the the brain science of what they now know is that uh, uh, the the brain has the capacity to to go way past where it is. And we don't sort of fully understand that, but that's its own topic. The... the, um, you sent us over to uh, Joan Lombardi and uh, what a giant she is. And uh, one of the things we're exploring with, with uh, Gift Connect is the power of music. Because in fact, if you talk about something, it's going to the brain. And if you do music, it goes to the heart. And we're creating a whole relationship with the um, uh, Carnegie uh, Music Hall with lullabies. And, and just the songs about uh, zero to three and, and uh, talk to, sing to, play with, uh, read to, and, and, and sort of in a lullaby fashion, which is memorable so that everybody gets it. What, what are your thoughts about the power of music? Well, I would never, ever counter uh, anything Joan Lombardi says because she is a genius and fantastic. <laughs> I think she, you're exactly right. 
Sam, we need to, to, to use music more uh, because it is, it is language and it's language of the heart, but it's also language of that, that stimulates the brain. It's interesting. My seven-year-old grandson uh, has uh, learned a song in first grade that uh, teaches him all the, the states. And so he loves to sing that to me. And so he sings all of the song of all the states starting uh, alphabetically. And, uh, you know, he will remember that forever and ever. And there's just, and that's how, you know, when you hear kids sing the ABCs, uh, they think they always sing that louder than any other song because they think they're so important and they know that those letters are so important. So I think you all are really on to something that music is a way uh, to stimulate the brain and uh, to engage the heart as well. Yeah, the other thing that, that I'm wrestling with is you, you and so many people have done such amazing things starting with Clinton and then Obama and, and George W. Bush with literacy. And I'm an optimist. And so all that was so valuable, but the United States is still rated so badly, like the 34th worst country out of 36 developed nations in early childhood development, stuff like that. And, and so I sort of reduce it to the idea that toddlers and babies don't vote. And so, how do how do we how do we mobilize people at, at a local level to want to get excited about this? And somehow, the power of technology can cut two ways: it can do negative stuff and it can do positive stuff. So, somehow, I'm thinking with, with social media and new technology, we can develop a system which really educates all Americans. To start with, maybe AARP with seniors. Grandma, I love that idea. Grandmother and grandfathers. And just talk to me about that. Does that make any sense to you? Well, I have hope that you're going to make a big difference. So uh, me too. <laughs> and, and stay with us because we need you. Um, you know, I think you're right. Babies don't vote. The other thing is they're only a baby for five years. And politicians kind of think in, uh, you know, two and four year segments because they get reelected every two or every four or six years. And so they're not thinking long term. Uh, you know, I, I get so frustrated because every time we think we're about to, to get what we really need for our infants and toddlers and young children, uh, you know, there's a crisis that comes along in Ukraine. We, we certainly need to fund the war. We certainly need to look at the environment. It's very it's scary with what's happening. So I don't want to compete with great causes, but we've got to find the resources in this rich country to start earlier and to do a better job. You know, I think the states have gotten frustrated with the federal government and they have moved ahead. And you have states like even Texas, you know, we have a really good preschool program for three and four year olds and uh, at, at five at uh, 150% of poverty children of military families attend. Also uh, Alabama has one of the highest rated programs in the country. Uh, West Virginia offers pre-K for every single four year old as does Oklahoma. Uh, so we have amazing things going on in states because they haven't waited around. Um, now we have cities joining in and saying, I'm not going to wait for the federal government. I'm certainly not going to wait for my state either. And so you have cities such as Washington, D.C. and New York City um, and, you know, Philadelphia that have passed bond initiatives or taxes on themselves to really set up good quality early education 
uh, pro, uh, systems. You know, they're mainly starting with three and four year old pre-K, which is easier to do, but they're not forgetting the infants and toddlers and are trying to figure out a way to uh, provide better pay for our child care workers and to provide better child care for all children. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that cities and local communities will uh, will you know take up the slack, and they need to. We can't do it all at the federal level. We've got to do some at the federal level, some at the state level, and some at the local level. Let's talk a little bit about the economics of it. So, if the United States, the records seem to indicate we're spending less than five hundred dollars per child, zero to five, and then. Uh, other countries are spending ten thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars per year per kid, and and then we can't afford it. Now, then, if you look at that, uh, I, I just play with math. If we took five thousand dollars per child for for the first three years, that's fifteen thousand dollars. If we don't do that, uh, 1.2 million kids a year drop out of high school, and 80 percent of them interface with the penal system, and then we spend more than a million dollars per, per person to try to turn it around when you can. And so you, you don't spend 15,000 and you, we're prepared to spend a million. And then Heckman at the University of Chicago won a Nobel laureate, Nobel Prize about the, the return on investment. And talk to me about that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it is a good selling point. The Perry Preschool Project that started all of this really did show that there was a seven to one return on investment. For every dollar invested, you got seven back. Uh, you know, that was early on. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's very hard to do these studies. Heckman is obviously the right person to do it. He's a Nobel laureate. Yeah. So he, I wouldn't want to contradict him. And he's shown that you have amazing returns because if you put the money in and you prevent a child from dropping out of school, from becoming engaged with the criminal justice system, from going on and getting a job and becoming a taxpayer and having fewer health problems later on, they're amazing savings. But you know, it's all speculative. I mean, it isn't speculative, but I think for policymakers, it looks kind of like, uh, well, you know, you're making up these these um, statistics. And it's, you know, 20, 30 years out. So sometimes they don't see it. But you're exactly right. There would be huge savings if we could provide a better foundation for every single child. All right. Well, I, I would say that having the privilege of having you on this podcast um, I'm sitting here and you're giving me goosebumps of optimism that right around the corner, we, we can turn this whole thing around. So it's just amazing. Thank you for being here. Just very, very special. Well, thank you all. And, uh, you know, my hope is with you and that you will help us figure out how in my lifetime we can turn this around. Well, forget your lifetime because you're going to live for many, many years. If you do a 70 mile bike bike ride, uh, you're, you're healthy as can be. And I'm an optimist. The answer is in the next 10 years, we're going to do this. The time, time is now. The next 10 years, we're going to make a big difference. Well, I'm ready to help. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and get to work. <laughs> well, that kind of said, that's great because that segues me into the last couple of questions. The first one being, we've had advocates of early childhood development for decades, right? Starting back with Perry Project, President Johnson, etc. Why do you believe now's the time? Libby, or th that we can finally get the traction that we need. 
Do you see any indicators that this this is really true that we can really make this happen? I, I'm I'm very hopeful. I think so. Um, you know, I think COVID laid bare the problems in the early childhood system. In fact, today I just was reading before we got on a mm -hmm. newsletter that comes with early childhood clips, and here are just some of the headlines. Georgia's childcare workers are among the lowest paid in the nation. Childcare in Michigan costs more than 11,000 on average. Pennsylvania's surging childcare costs. Uh, Washington parents struggling to find affordable care. Childcare crisis hurts families, workers, and the economy, report says. So these, this is just in one day, we're having mm -hmm. those kind of headlines showing that families can't find childcare, moms can't go to work, some dads can't go to work, we're wasting a resource. And I think that women and now men are really realizing we've got to do something. So I think in the next 10 years, it is ripe for change. I've had, I'm sorry we have to go down so far before we can go up, uh, but maybe that's what it's gonna take. Sometimes the only foundation you can build off is rock bottom, right? Right. <laughs> uh, Sam, I don't know if you have any other questions for Libby before I ask, uh, that's my last one here, which is really easy. So I would do your last question because I think we're, <laughs> I think we've presented an amazing story. Absolutely. So, Libby, I, you know, for our listeners that might want to follow you, find out more about you or, or the projects that you're involved in. How can they do that? Social, internet. What What is the best path? The best way is just to email me. I I'm I use social media a little bit, but my email is libby.doggett at gmail.com. And I work on programs and projects that I think will make a huge difference. I'm, I call myself a free consultant. I am proud to be on the board of First Book, which is an amazing organization that provides books to over 500 and 50,000 educators around the country, and we have an initiative to double the number of diverse books in the hands of low-income children over the next five years, working with 30 over 30 other book distribution organizations. I'm also on the board of Parents as Teachers, and we provide uh, home parent, parents training in their homes through the home visiting program. And then one more board is the uh, Birth to Three Policy Impact Center at Vanderbilt that is really looking at the policies. And I would ask everybody to go to their website and look at the policies that states could put in place that could make a huge difference for families. So uh, that's what I'm doing. And I'm happy to help anyone who really wants to move this agenda. That's awesome. And I knew when I said you're an encyclopedia of information that that was accurate. <laughs> so thank you so much, Libby. She's Sam. an encyclopedia with heart and energy. Absolutely. <laughs> and for well. anyone uh, that wants to interact with GIFT, it's just gift-connect.org. Gift uh, that's our website. It's also our social handles. And we're, of course, always looking for great subject material, people that can help move this forward uh, in conversation in, in, or in any fashion. So please feel free to join us, Sam, myself, and the rest of our team at giftconnect.org, gift-connect.org uh, on social or on the internet. And with that being said, I'll sign off for this episode of Gift Conversations podcast and just thank Libby again. So appreciative to have you with us and be here today. So thank you very much for your time. We know it's valuable and we respect that. Thank you all for what you're doing. I look forward to more interaction.